Welcome to the 375th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome artist Suzanne Brennan-Furstenberg, the creator of the In America Remember COVID Memorial in Washington, D.C. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. And please, as always, feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 10th, 2021, there are 5,067,465 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Rogelio Ro Lechuga. This was written by Taylor Seeley and appeared in Arizona Central, March 12, 2021. He climbed the ladder his entire life, always working hard, always progressing. In the final five years, things were really coming together for Rogelio Lechuga, or Roe, as everyone called him. He moved to the United States at age 14. He was humble with a good work ethic. He started working in the fields, then construction, and later materials handling. No one should be content with just scraping by. Roe went back to school for mechanical drafting when he was 38, his wife Suzanne Lechuga said. He worked his way into sales and found success, she said. He had a beautiful wife, three children, and a career he enjoyed. He worked hard for all of it, and he was proud of where he was. He loved being a husband, and his children were the light of his world, Susan said. Family took a vacation to the Mogollon Rim before Roe got sick. It was supposed to be the start of a new life chapter, one in which they traveled more frequently. COVID-19 stunted their travel plans. Susan homeschooled their children to keep the family safe, but two weeks before Roe died, he was required to go back to work. Susan said he wore a mask and took precaution, but he soon contracted the disease. Roe fought his symptoms at home after a doctor said COVID-19 was unlikely. Eight days later, isolated in a bedroom at home, he asked Susan to call an ambulance. He couldn't breathe. Two minutes later, before the paramedics arrived, he was dead. Minute the chief came out with his wedding ring in his hand. I knew he was gone, Susan said. Bo died October 26, 2020, at age 44. After 21 years of marriage, Susan could list a million things she'll remember about Roe, she said, but mostly she'll remember his strength and how he always rose up to a challenge. I miss holding him at night. I will miss his smell, his voice, but what I really miss the most is knowing he will come home every night, Susan said. Seeing him walk through that door with his voice exclaiming, Honey, I'm home, holding a box of treats for the kids and me. I miss my best friend waking up with me and going to sleep with me. I'll miss seeing him watch all the milestones of our children. 
Paleo Lechuga survived by his wife, Susan, his children, Rowanna, Rowan, and Rodrigo, his mother, Rosa, and siblings, Jackie, Maria, and Ricardo. <clears throat> okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm just thrilled to introduce my guest, Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg. Suzanne is a visual artist who's demonstrated the power of art to touch hundreds of thousands of lives. In the fall of 2020, images of her images of her in America, How Could This Happen? art installation graced over 600 news articles on six continents, making visible the pandemic's cost in American lives. Her art created a national space for mourning. Furstenberg recreated her most recent art installation, newly named In America, Remember on the National Mall. For 17 days, over 660,000 white flags covered the space. She believes art has incredible power to educate, inspire, and change the lens through which viewers understand social issues. Interviews, research, and reading ground her work on topics including gun violence, Native Americans, homelessness, and political partisanship. The underlying theme is upholding individual dignity, a value that she's honed through her 25 years of hospice volunteering. And we'll hear more about this in a moment, I'm sure, but she also traveled to 24 states and interviewed hundreds of people in preparation for her newly completed project, Empty Fix, a seven-installation art series to decrease societal stigma surrounding drug addiction. She's also represented the United States at the Harbin China International Ice and Snow Sculpting Competition and has had her work accessioned by the Smithsonian Institution. Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. I think, I think you're muted, Suzanne. Scott, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you tonight. So I'd like to start where I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. So I'm one of the lucky ones. I am in the Washington DC area. I am in just over the line in Maryland, Bethesda, Maryland. And here, this is the land of masking. So many people have taken great, great care in keeping each other safe during this pandemic. So it, there is not a lot of unrest about COVID and taking precautions. And so I'm, I'm frankly really lucky to live in this place. I've been asking guests if they would share a memory of this time. It's kind of an impossible task because this memory is a dense around COVID. But I wonder if you would share some moment just as we start out that really stands in for this COVID time for you. You know, I think it has to be at the beginning of the pandemic because life changed so very abruptly for all of us. And I, I remember going on walks every single evening. I would go on a walk by myself just to try to understand the import of this and to just for mental health, right? To get outside and to breathe fresh air. But I remember the streets were, were empty. There was there were no cars there were no people but there were a lot of lights on in houses and i thought of how at least people were together in this time and i tried to keep thinking about the ways in which we were caring for each other so i never forget those those cold evening walks when the streets were deserted I know that's a strange memory, 
but but uh, one that I'll never experience again, likely. It's not strange at all, and thank you for sharing it. And I, in fact, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and that's that's one that several people have pointed to walking really? through empty streets. Yeah. Oh, in New York City, I, I visited New York a few times, and that was it was bizarre to walk or to drive in New York when there was no traffic. So I'd like to get a, a sense. We're going to talk about your current projects, obviously, but to kind of get a little sense of of your art before COVID. And um, one of the most interesting details from your from your bio is your um, previous work in ice and snow sculpting, which is fascinating. But maybe we can get to that. But kind of more generally. How did you come into being an, an artist and what kind of ideas have sustained you? You know, I'm a very privileged artist because I had quite a bit of experience that I brought to my art. I didn't realize that I was an artist um, until about 10 or 12 years ago when I accidentally found that out. And so I had a career in pharmaceutical new product development. I worked on Capitol Hill. I did the hospice volunteering that you had mentioned, and I raised three kids. And so I brought a wealth of life experiences to the art. Uh, and that allowed me, once I discovered that I was an artist and intensely learned all sorts of art forms, it gave me a chance to then bring a lot of content to my art. So if one looks at the art that I've created over these last 10 plus years, you'll see just a little bit of object making, but pretty quickly I got into social practice art making art that really is meant to change attitudes. And you found your way into that because other venues for addressing social issues uh, were, I mean, I'm sort of curious about how you chose this way to engage with those social issues rather than, you know, other ways that might be possible. Because I had a clear understanding that words matter less and less now. Words are becoming less effective because we are all existing in our echo chambers, our technology-induced echo chambers. And so I knew that art had a lot of work to do, and I could use this newfound communications language of art to, to make change, whereas if I just used words, it would be less likely to, to affect that change. So let's talk about your project from last year, which was the genesis of the continuation of that project this year. In America, how could this happen? When did you first conceive of the idea and how did you get started? I'll give you the long answer. Forgive me. It was. Yeah, I like the long answer. We have. That's why I have a longer program. Yeah. Excellent. And I thank you for that because getting into the weeds sometimes is so valuable. It was last March, at the end of March 2020, when the Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick suggested that the elderly should be willing to take the risk of the virus for the economy, I felt aggrieved by that. I felt insulted. I've worked with with uh, hospice as a volunteer for 25 years. And so in that time, I've met plenty of elderly people who had a lot to contribute, who had a lot to say. And um, so I understood that the devaluation of elderly lives was the start of a very slippery slope. Then I saw the devaluation of lives of color because in April, that was when the administration was just wanting to, to quit talking about the epidemic. Imagine that, six weeks into it and people wanted to stop talking about it. I mean, if only they had a crystal ball and could see what lay ahead, right? 
but there was talk of just wanting to be a cheerleader for the economy and 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 yet that was the same weekend those comments were made that researchers were divulging the fact that data was showing that communities of color were being very disproportionately affected by this and that again felt to me like the devaluation of lives this time lives of color so I realized that we were up against something that was very, very dangerous. The devaluation of certain segments of society, that's when society as a whole begins to crumble. So I spent a few months wondering just how I could do this. And then I was tipped over the edge and had to immediately take action. When I read a Washington Post headline that said, 180,000 lives is just a statistic, the administration says. And I realized then that I had to use art to stand up for the dignity of every single person who had died because they weren't just statistics. So I went out and I bought a quarter of a million white marking flags, even before I had a place to put them. But luckily, Mayor, Mayor Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C. helped me to find and identify a spot there outside of the RFK Stadium. The spot is about three miles east of the National Mall. And there I, I did my first iteration of this art, as you had mentioned, entitled In America, How Could This Happen? And it was aptly named because that's what I really wanted to know. How could we, the greatest country on earth, allow this to happen? And if you'll let me just share one quick story from that sure. art installation. I was interviewed by a lot of the press during that exhibition, which lasted five weeks, because it was at the same time as our national election. There were many foreign correspondents here covering that. And so they came to my white flag installation and interviewed me. One in particular was a Japanese correspondent who was about 66, 67 years old. He interviewed me and as his team was packing up their equipment, I noticed that he had wandered off to the side. And so I walked over to him and stood for a moment, and he said to me, Suzanne, and his gaze went across these four-plus acres of white flags. He said, Suzanne, when I was a teenager in Tokyo, I loved everything about America. I loved the Beach Boys and the Who and the, you know, all the whole scene. I loved it. And he said, I carried that part of America with me through my teenage years, through all my adult life, that was an important part of me, that desire to be American. He looked and he said, this crushes that part of me. And in that moment, I understood that not only were we letting down the American public by letting this happen, we were letting down people across the world who had held us in such high esteem, that the greatest nation in the world would have the greatest death toll, should be of concern, should be of real concern. And and so I've brought this art installation now to the National Mall, um, sadly at a time when we in the United States comprise four and a quarter percent of the world population, and yet we account for 15%, almost four times as much um, of the of the worldwide deaths. So... I wanted to create art to give us a pause, a moment when we could all stop and say, is this really who we are? Well, thank you for going into that, into that description and, and uh, 
Yeah, it's really moving. What the the story about the journalist too, and I, I think at that at that moment, it's I like how you sort of unfold that. That your realization there is that this is not just a an American story, but it's a way of telling a global story. It just happens to be situated here, right there in that case in the RFK Stadium. What did the mayor's office say when you said, "I've got two hundred and fifty thousand white flags that need to be"? Posted somewhere. I'm sort of fascinated to know what the city of Washington, D.C.'s reaction was to that. Supportive. I have to tell you, everyone has been very, very supportive. There hasn't been a lot of art on a national level that speaks to COVID-19's effect on our country. And so it was imperative. They understood it was imperative that my art be done and presented in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And then when members of, well, when management of the National Park Service and representatives of the Trust for the National Mall saw that art last fall, they understood that where it really needed to be was on the National Mall. And so they really supported me throughout the winter uh, to get, to have the opportunity to present it there this, this September. So at the time that you were bringing down the installation the first time, you already had a pretty good sense that that was just part one, that you were going to be continuing to deal with this medium and these numbers. Actually, no. Hmm. I really felt so concerned that we were going into a very dark winter when there were going to be a lot more deaths because the, the daily average the average daily death rate was increasing significantly as this came down on November 30th, 2020. And so... I, I found a way to capture that art in the digital sphere and so that people would at least be able to see the flags that had been done last fall. We added them to a map. And then I just worried and worried about what we were going to do to honor those deaths that had, that were yet to come. But it didn't take long. It was only January, February when talks began with the National Park Service. I see. Well, that would just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to Suzanne Brennan-Furstenberg, who's the creator of now the two art installations, the In America series. And we're, let me show um, a couple of images, Suzanne, and we can talk a little bit about the visual aspect of it. And um, give me, bear with me one second while we do that. And... Yes. So here, what people are looking at is the bottom half of the large signature sign. You see it says 666,624 deaths. This was the number when the installation opened on September 17th. Each day, I changed those numbers to reflect through the Johns Hopkins University COVID tracking numbers, the cumulative death toll for that day. So each day those numbers changed, and on the last day of the installation, which was October 3rd, that number had grown by 35,000 flags 
to be 701,000. Uh, so the art installation itself was a living entity. It changed daily as, as we added more deaths. And also, I should make note, it changed daily because people were invited to come and personalize or dedicate a flag if they had lost a loved one. It was really important to me not only to have the requisite number of flags so people could truly visualize the data, but also to humanize each flag. And so as people would walk through the flags, each, each day, more and more of the flags had uh, took on names and stories and dates of birth and death. Flags were personalized. And, and what I would encourage people to do is as they, as they arrived at the installation was to just look at one flag, just concentrate on one, read it and think about the concentric circles of grief surrounding that flag. And then I said, raise your gaze and try to imagine all the grief, the sadness, the pain that this field of flags represents. Gonna, I'm going to show a, um, another image here that I think will actually demonstrate that expanse a little bit so that people who may not be familiar with the National Mall in Washington can also kind of get a sense of the scale of it. Yes. So you heard me reference the four-acre-plus site that at RFK Stadium last fall. Here you see 147 different sections of flags on 20 acres, just over 20 acres of land there at the base of the Washington Monument. Each of those squares you see is 60 feet by 60 feet and contains over 5,200 flags. The installation was immense. This picture was taken from the top of the Commerce Building. If you were on the ground at this point and looking out at these flags, you would not be able to see the entire installation because it went so far. It went two long city blocks from the 15th Street to 17th Street. And because of the topography, without aerial photography, there would be no picture of the entire installation. That's how large it, it was. I have so many questions about this. So let, let me let me start with some logistics. Yeah. Um, and we started to talk a little bit about that a moment ago. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got volunteers, how you did the daily, um, I guess, sort of the first setup and then the daily setups, uh, because it sounds like the kind of project, you know, there's a there's a scale to it that we're seeing here, but there's a minuteness to it as well. There's the placing of the flag in the soil. There's the learning how to do that, I suppose, without bending it. There's the handling of a flag that someone has, has written on. There's so many sort of craft elements to it, and there's so many respectful sort of reverential elements to it. But then there's just the labor of putting this thing up. And so yeah. could you say a little bit more about well, that? You know, a cautionary tale to anyone who wants to do art on the National Mall, it, it takes a long time, and it's very complex. It took me months, and I hired a company that could help 
just manage the permitting process because there are all sorts of things such as security that one might not think of at first. There are incredible rules. You saw this signature sign. That sign had to be moved every five days to protect the turf. So there are incredible regulations and rules that, that are involved in presenting art on the National Mall. But, but I was undaunted and I, my team, I actually had about 35 people from different um, industries and specialties working on my team. The first, when you talk about logistics and just getting these into the ground, that was one part of the team. Rupert Landscape donated over 1,500 man hours to plant these flags. A man there, Chuck Welton, created two different planting mechanisms. These were grids and and while we could not use any equipment to plant the flags because I felt that that would, would be, it would just would be disrespectful. They had to be planted by hand, just as you're asking. They had to be singularly placed by hand. But we did create, but Chuck really created these grids and, and planting mechanisms that would guide the planting. Because think about it, planting 700,000 or even at the time 666,000 flags is hard enough, but to plant them in an array and specifically 10 inches apart was quite a task. But Rupert Landscape did the impossible and they helped me do that in three days time. Then each day we had lots of volunteers manning several reception tables because it wasn't just putting these flags, having these flags dedicated to individuals. And it wasn't just answering visitors questions. Um, providing equal access was really important to me. And so we recreated this art in the digital space. I partnered with Esri, which is the largest global mapping, uh, software mapping company. Let me say that again. Esri, which is the largest uh, mapping software company mm -hmm. in the world. They partnered with me and they helped create a map on the website so that people could just send us requests to have flags dedicated if they couldn't afford the time or the money to come to Washington and experience the art themselves. And we would have volunteers on the ground write out the flags based on those dedications and plant them for them. And then we had a whole team of students and faculty from GW University here in Washington, DC, and they did the geolocation. They had apps on their phones, and they would take a picture and exactly locate where that flag was on the mall. And then by pressing a button, it would magically appear on the digital map so that people could see that their request had been fulfilled. So there were a lot of volunteers. We had probably 5,000 volunteer hours dedicated to this and um, people around the country working on it. It's remarkable. And, and from the description of the project, uh, one of the descriptions that um, I think it was on your website, actually, um, you describe it as a it's a memorial can be interpreted as a memorial, but also in scientific terms. I thought this was fascinating. It's a large scale data visualization, and which is what you were just alluding to. Can you talk a little bit more about that, too? Because every day on COVID calls, I read those numbers, the same ones you alluded to, the Johns Hopkins numbers. Mm -hmm. And then I read an obituary, um, but I don't have the skills. I'm in the talking and the writing you know, part of this. I don't have the skills to, to visualize those, those numbers. But that's been a big element of this 
disaster is artists and uh, data experts and newspapers and news organizations of all types trying to take those numbers and bring them to us in many ways. But I hadn't thought of your project as a data visualization until I read that. Yes, yes. This is this is a, a prime example of data visualization. It's And that was one of the reasons why I felt so compelled as an artist to do it and why I had to have one flag for each person who had died because we had to have people understand the magnitude. Once a number gets so large that people can't experience it themselves, it becomes just a number. And when that number represents deaths and individuals, it becomes all the more important to actualize it in physical form. And so that's, that's what I did. And because the number was so large, it, people's response to it was overwhelming. And it was interesting because data visualization is more important than people may realize. Some of the visitors who came in those first few days, remember, this art installation began on Friday, September 17th. We had just had the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So those first few days, many people came to the art and they looked around at all these white flags and they would say to me, is this for 9-11? We lost just under 3,000 people on 9-11. So I had to say to them, look at one of these squares and 9-11 would be two th roughly two thirds of just one of these 60 by 60 squares. Wow. And then they realized, because people just think 9-11 was big and it was bad and this is bad. They don't, it's really hard to, to truly understand the magnitude of this. And I think that was one of the strengths of this art installation was really making it understandable. Even though once people got there, because it was flags as far as they could see, it was still a little hard to understand. See, I think that's the that's the power of it, which is that the data visualization, as as we've described it, maybe on a on a newspaper that's poured a lot of money into data journalism. Those are really impressive, and they're immersive, and of course they keep you there longer, and they sell advertisements, and they're they're playing a role, they're doing their part, and I, I appreciate what's gone into that. But this is a data immersion, and yeah, it's the physicalness of it. I don't the, think we've had that. Yeah. I don't think we've had that with this with this pandemic. Yeah, that's what we need. It's when we are surrounded by physical material, uh, it makes a difference. It just made a difference, I think, in this particular instance. Something else I want to pick up on in some of the stories you've been telling is is how you felt moving around in it and talking to people. I mean, you've you've told some some stories here about you know helping to coach people into it, like what, how they maybe can begin to experience it. Yeah. But I wonder also if it was, I mean, it's kind of a personal question, but I mean, it's exhausting physically, I'm sure, but emotionally to be out there and to be the person who's like standing over this massive field of flags, it seems it would be overwhelming to try to explain that to people and walk them through it day by day. First of all, and you're right, it, it was overwhelming. First of all, I have to say, I was I knew going in how many flags. I bought these flags. I did. Right. I, was on, sure. I was overwhelmed at how many flags there were. So, um, so that was the first bit of, of experience that was hard to really wrap my head around. But sitting, excuse me, 
usually standing with people and talking with them about their grief, listening to their stories, it was overwhelming. And people would say to me, oh, you've probably heard this story time and again. And I would say, you know, no, I haven't. I haven't heard about your mother. Tell me about your mother and and how what she meant to you. People, every story was different. It was amazing. The ones that were so very touching and memorable were ones like this this gentleman who I came upon very early in the art installation. It was sunset, and he was standing there looking over these flags with tears in his eyes. And I it just so I went up to him and I said, You're you're in pain. And he said, Yeah. He said it reminds me of Arlington Cemetery. And I said, that was purposeful. I designed it in a way so that it would be evocative of Arlington. That's where we've buried those who've protected us. And here, conversely, is where we're honoring those we haven't protected or been able to protect. And he said, I have a son buried at Arlington Cemetery. And so I said, I'm sorry that this has triggered that grief. He said, no, no, I've learned where that grief is stored. He said, I have another son in Florida who refuses to get vaccinated. And what's overwhelming me now is that there could be a flag added for him and his mother, my wife, cannot go through that again. Those were the types of stories that time and again just brought home how trying this this disease has been for families, how it's really broken apart families when people have had differing attitudes towards it. And many of the stories like that one have just underscored how absolutely destructive it has been to have this this pandemic politicized. No, I just want to acknowledge Kay Hay, who wrote in uh, and interacted um, with the project and wrote her uh, parents' flag, which was on display as part of the project. And the um, thanks for writing, Kay. And then the obituary I read today of Rogelio Lechuga is also taken from uh, the name is was actually in one of the photographs, which was in the Atlantic um, profile of your work. And that that obituary was on AC Central, but. Um, Yes. I think you have some of those at hand. I mean, you're, uh, I we have you in your archive there, I think, even as the backdrop, which is remarkable in and of yeah. itself. <laughs> There's a lot of work going on here. So first, let me just thank Kay for participating. You know, I was the artist who conceived of this and made this happen, but we have over 16,000 flags that were dedicated in this art installation. And so I, I say that Part of this is created by 16 plus thousand co-artists. So, Kay, thank you for, for sharing of yourself and your loss. Each time a visitor saw a personalized flag, that really brought them back down to the understanding about how much grief was represented by each flag. So it was complicated to, to extract the art quickly from the National Mall. What you're seeing behind me are <laughs> a lot of different um, racks, and we have 147 sections that we had flags in, and so I have 147 groupings of boxes here. 
um, they are in various stages of being finally geolocated because some were not geolocated by the time the art installation had to disappear from the mall. But they are all going to be cleaned. Those that have not yet been photographed will be photographed. They'll be documented and then archived. The Smithsonian has already requested that they be allowed to accession some of the flags. They accessioned some from last fall's installation and they will be taking more from this. This is part of archiving and presenting history from the pandemic. It's, an, it's a way for them to add to that capture of this historic moment. So I'm working with them and then I'm also hoping to devise some traveling exhibitions because these flags are, they're just incredible. And I wish that the boxes were open so you could see how many flags there are. I pulled out two that I was working with this afternoon. Great, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna wear my white gloves here. I'm gonna cheat a bit, but you can see this one. And, and the flags are really reflective of different personalities and different families. Do you wanna read that, Scott? Just actually, I'm on a full, can a full you? screen oh, here. I can read it. It says, it says, in blood, we were not related, but in heart, you was family. Love you much, Miguel. Say hi to your dad, Tony. Sure. Right? Um, some people use their artistic skills on their flags. Here's one for Edward, Eduardo. The, the flags are wow. so reflective of different personalities, different relationships, different people, but they're all heartfelt. I think years from now, this will be a sociologic or anthropologic study. These will ultimately end up in an archive where people can study them because I think the expressions of grief really tell us something about ourselves. Did they tend to be uh, dedicated in a, a personal way so that they were written to a person or about a person or were they, did people also write ones that were a more general statement about the, about the time? I would say about 98% of them are personalized. I see. There's oftentimes a name, a sentiment, uh, expressions of, of grief. There was, there was one that said, Kitty, you, you, you refused the vaccine because you thought God would keep you safe. But the vaccine was from God. Uh, so there's all sorts That's of sentiments. Professional. Wow. Yeah. Oh, the thing about it is, and I realized this from the start, when one is in mourning, it's very important to have activities to, to help process or move through grief. And riding on a flag, even that simple act of picking up a Sharpie and just writing on a, a blank white flag. Mm. It's helpful. It's helpful. That's one of the things that surprised me the most. I knew the reactions that, and the emotions that people would bring to the art. What I didn't know is how well the flags would serve the visitors. And the flags did well. So many people reported that they felt solace some people actually even said it brought them a bit of peace. The stories were, were, were often really heartwarming. One woman said that since her sister had died, she had not seen her nephew, and this was months, uh, smile. 
and after they had all gathered and planted a written a flag and planted it for her sister, his mother, that was the first time she'd seen him smile since her death. You know, those are the stories that are so compelling and add to the richness of this art. For art to be able to not only give us a moment of pause and help us to understand the size of this tragedy, but also to provide individual peace or solace. You know, I'm so honored as an artist to, to have been able to play a part in this. I agree with you entirely, too, that uh, people will want to read those and understand um, some of the trends in those sentiments. But also, I think, you know, even the two that you showed, that each one opens up a world uh, in there. And we want to know more. And, and I wonder, too, uh, you know, you described the volunteers and all of the work that went into this and and the people who are interacting with visitors. Ha, were you able to capture some of those stories? I mean, you're, you've been telling stories very effortlessly. Um, have, have you been, how, how have you captured the verbal side of this, the interpersonal communication side of it? So there is to me a certain privacy in a way. So I didn't ask people to record or um, specifically document all these stories. I would say to them, to the volunteers who manned the tables, if there's something that was really memorable, make a note of it. If there's something that was special about a situation, make a note. Um, I just have to share one of the more amazing stories. And we had a lot of amazing things happen in this art. It, it was such a privileged place. It was such an important space for 17 days. A lot of really amazing things happened. There was a couple who arrived and they walked up to a reception table and they asked if they could please dedicate a flag for their doctor, their physician. They said they loved him and he died from COVID. And the, the volunteer, of course, said, well, yes, yes. What was the doctor's name? And they gave it, they told her, and she was quiet and then she looked at him and she said, um, that was my husband. She was his widow. And so she and the couple, she left the table to the other volunteers and she went with them and showed them the flag that she had written for him and they, they wrote a flag as well. Um, but that's the kind of amazing thing that happened in this space. The other thing that's really important, and I don't want to lose sight of this, I think it's from a sociologic standpoint, it's, it's important to understand. People comforted strangers. One woman who's maybe 60, she lost her mother. She dedicated a flag for her mother, planted it in the ground, and then decided to get down on the ground and take a photo with her with her cell phone she didn't expect to be struck by by grief but she was and so she just laid her head down and sobbed for a few moments when she got up she she saw a bike a bicyclist right there he had laid down his bicycle and he had just planted a flag come to find out for a friend of his he looked at her and he said do you need a hug and she looked up with this tear-stained face and said, yeah. And in that moment, imagine having a complete stranger recognize a need and just give another stranger a hug. That's the kind of thing that happened 
time and again in this space, it wouldn't happen in a grocery store checkout line. It wouldn't happen somewhere else, but we created a safe space. We created a space where there wasn't a section for Republicans and one for Democrats or one for different races or religions. It, right. We were just one. wanted to, well, thank you again for sharing that. And I want to uh, just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg today. I, I do want to ask about the politics part of it, that in part because you, you mounted this first in the time of the election. So there's actually, this is a memorial that straddles both sides. If you think of it in two parts, or I'm just characterizing it that way, but um, part one and, and the larger part two, and it, and it straddles two presidencies, Yes. And it's in the national, the first one was not in the national mall, but it's in the nation's capital. This one's on the national mall. I'm curious what kind of, how the project got drawn into politics, if it did, if you had backlash or, or pushback or critique that was ideological, that people, because, and I ask this with respect, because I know that part of what you want to do is also foster conversation. And as you just said, mourning has to be bipartisan if we have any hope in the United States of getting past this. But I can only imagine in these times that this was also um, a source of criticism. So a couple of things. First of all, the mainstream press did not criticize. There was not criticism there. And in fact, um, it, it, this really bridged different different communications channels. For instance, CNN's Dana Bash was an MC at the opening ceremony, and she did a piece on, on closing day there on her program on CNN. Chris Wallace tried very hard. He didn't make it, but he tried very hard to make it. And so, and, and we even had a group of, of a bipartisan group of 35 to 40 members of Congress come together and have a moment of silence amidst the flags. So, People tried really hard to keep it non-political. There were some people who were quite concerned about our security. We had to increase our security because the first Saturday of this art exhibition was the was there was a a um, gathering on the mall near the Capitol in support of the January sixth insurrectionists, and so people thought that that those who were involved in that would come and, and damage the flags or destroy them. But I, I told them, no, we had no problem with that at all. There was no destruction. There were very, very, there was like maybe one or two people who came and complained about it in person. And I'll share one of those stories with you. What I did do is stay away from social media. I hired someone to just handle the social media and the, the, there was stuff there, but that's what the delete button is for, right? right. <laughs> um, we, we, didn't, we didn't give that voice or time. One woman came 
Let me just share this story quickly. Mm-hmm. She was agitated. She said, there's a flag here for my mom because the doctor said my mom died of COVID. And this is a woman who's probably 50. She said, the doctors, my mom got COVID and the doctor said she died of COVID, but she died of a heart attack. And I want you to remove the flag that's here representing my mother. And it was, of course, it was a blank flag she was referring to. And I, and I realized that she needed some time so and that there was something else there. So I said to her, let's step over here and I want to look into your eyes and I want you to tell me about your mother. And you know, her, it wasn't, it wasn't about ideology. It wasn't about politics. Her anger was really rooted in pain. She was sad. She had lost her mother. And so by talking with her and just asking questions about her mom, that settled her down and she thanked me in the end and she she um, left. I think we have to understand that there's a whole lot of anger right now, but so much of it is rooted in other emotions. And that's what we have to take the time if we have it and the energy and the ability to to get beyond the anger and to see what's really underneath. It's a powerful insight, and, and it's one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, one of the core parts of denial, COVID denial, is that the numbers were wrong, or the numbers were inflated, and maybe some of us even have heard that from from people that we care about, um, who we wish would be vaccinated. Uh, that's certainly something in my own family. And that, and that sort of core part of that discussion is, oh, well, this has been inflated by doctors, by nurses, by the media, and, and so on. It's very hard to have that discussion. I mean, it's ultimately um, maybe it doesn't lead anywhere anywhere productive because there's not a shared base of of trust of where the number comes from. If you don't trust right. Johns Hopkins right. University, I guess you could say, "Oh, well, the numbers well, it's and, just and made if, up." How do you how do you if, grapple with that? And if facts can be my facts or your facts, that gets that. That makes it a little harder. One of the most important things I've read, and I think it was in the New York Times recently, was researchers had looked into who are not getting vaccinations, who are the refusers. And a lot, and so you'd think in a regression analysis that it would be ideology-based. There would be a political tinge to it. But in fact, the the most dominant factor of commonality, the factor that explained the most uh, in who would who would choose to get a vaccine and who would not, was healthcare. If people had healthcare, because one of the best ways to change a person who is 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 on the fence about vaccinations is medical advice. And if a person doesn't have access to healthcare, if they don't have a trusted medical advisor, that makes sense. They, they would be much more likely to listen to what's going on in social media or on the wrong channel, what have you. I thought that was very interesting. Well, I think so too. The, this is an astounding project, and, but I want to ask you now, since you're one of the key creators of memorial tools and memorial, you know, act. Um, visualization in this time. Are there other ones that you've enjoyed? Are there other ones you're aware of out there that you've interacted with and memorials of any any type or memorial practices at this type that have inspired you? 
Um, I would have to harken back to the AIDS quilt. Hmm. And I mentioned that just because it was such an astonishingly brilliant choice of iconography. Uh, um, with HIV AIDS, it had ripped families apart. And to have, to use the iconography of a quilt, which is the quintessential image or symbol of home and hearth and warmth and connectedness, and to have that used in this way, in that way to honor those who had died from AIDS was really, really perfectly designed to help knit families back together. And so I think that that will always be one of those art installations that I think has done a, a just incredibly good job. With this art installation, we're at a, certainly at a different place societally. Instead of being able to be knit back together and to be accepting, we've got a little bit longer, a little bit longer road ahead of us. So, I want to give a chance here. We're almost out of time, but um, you've got this project. So you didn't take a pause at all, it appears, and you started another project, Empty Fix. Tell um, us about that. Actually, the Empty Fix was finished. The last oh. of the seven installations was finished right before the pandemic began. Oh, so okay. the Empty Fix is ready to go out the door and start being seen. Social stigma it can keep people from getting treatment for drug, from, for drug addiction. I knew nothing about drug addiction when I went out on the road. I visited 23, 24 different states and interviewed hundreds of people so I could understand what underlied the vulnerability to addiction. And what people taught me just was, was astonishing. Psychological injury makes people incredibly vulnerable to addictions of all sorts, but addictions particularly to, to chemicals. And so what we need to do is bubble wrap kids. We need to protect kids from very young ages, from all sorts of psychological trauma that they have, child abuse, sexual abuse, isolation, bullying, neglect. And if you think about it, this pandemic, has traumatized an entire generation of kids. And it goes well beyond the fact that they couldn't go to school for a while or they lost some schooling opportunities. The 130,000 kids in the United States have lost caregivers. And if they haven't lost caregivers, they've had the pass-through trauma of parents lost jobs and financial security. And so one of the things coming out of this that we all have to focus on is keeping kids psychologically safe and helping them work through the, the effects of this pandemic because they'll be taking this. It's packed, it's packed now in their psychological yeah. backpacks and it will be with them for a lifetime. Yesterday in my discussion with Tom Ewing and Catherine Randall, they were ta we talked about 1918 uh, and about the sort of missing, the absence of... of 1918 Spanish influenza, so-called Spanish influenza memorials. It, it was wrapped up in the sort of larger history of World War One, and and there is very little to find that right. that talks about that pandemic. But of course, we know as you go into the decades that follow, it touched 
if not every family in America directly, certainly um, one degree of separation. And one wonders how that disease, mental, you know, the kinds of terms that they might not have been using at that time, post-traumatic stress, manifest themselves in the 1930s. I've thought about that a lot. And so I think the connection between in America and empty fix is important. I mean, last year had the greatest number of drug overdoses in American history recorded, I think. Right, over 93,000. So this is a bigger complex of issues that we have oh, to deal with. It's true. It, it is so true. And some people are saying, uh, just a quick, quick story. I was in Rapid City, South Dakota three days ago, and my elderly aunt said to me, I just don't understand why people aren't working. Why are all these jobs going empty? <laughs> I had this think, you know, we just, we've lost probably 150,000 people just to drug overdoses throughout the course of the, the last 18 months. And, and think about the suicides and the domestic violence. Um, some of these people aren't around because they've died. So yes, the ramifications, the ripple effect from this will be immeasurable. So just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, this caps off uh, a week of extraordinary conversations and I was really looking forward to it. And uh, Suzanne Brennan-Furstenberg, thanks for the project. Thanks for your work. Um, thank you also for em employing people in this extraordinary project and then creating a base of information that others like myself will be wanting to work with for years to come. Just astounding. Congratulations and thanks. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.